You know how sometimes when you're out to eat with family and friends and the server has brought glasses of water in the menu and given you a few minutes and then she or he will say, do you have any questions? And this is the perfect time to ask if it's okay to substitute the green beans for the broccoli or if the veggie burger tastes anything like a burger. When I'm in a playful mood, and I'm pretty sure that the server isn't just overly burdened and, and in a hurry, I will sometimes say, yes, I have a question. What's the meaning of life? <laughs> and like you, we chuckle. But I would tip big time to have the answer, wouldn't you? The writer of Ecclesiastes is asking that question. That's what the entire book is about. That's the question that refrain goes throughout the book. What is the meaning of life? His conclusion is one word, one Hebrew word, hevel, which can be translated breath, like it's here and then it's gone, or vanity, or emptiness. And one scholar has suggested it's really close to the English absurd. Life is absurd. It makes no sense. You remember the rock band Kansas? All we are is dust in the wind. Well, I would expect that from a rock group, but from the Bible? This is the conclusion? It's just emptiness? This helps explain why the book of Ecclesiastes almost didn't get in. It's so cynical. So what the scribes did is they pretended, or at least tacked on the notion that maybe King Solomon wrote it. There's really no evidence for that. And then at the very end, they tacked on a few verses to kind of tie it up nice and neat like a bow. But there's nothing nice and neat about Ecclesiastes. Life is absurd. In these few verses that we read, and throughout the book, four things that the author argues to prove his point. And they're really good reasons. First, nothing changes. You know, you get up, you take a shower, you grab a cereal bar, a cup of coffee, and you head off to work, and, you know, just repeat that until retirement. Really? This is it? We just same every single day. Second, life seems predetermined. It's as if somebody's playing the game of life, but we're not up there rolling the dice. We're the little piece, and we're just being moved around, and God or somebody's rolling the dice, and, and it just feels out of control. Third, evil seems to be doing quite well. You volunteer to work at Micah Ministry, serving the poor and the hungry, and some schmuck cheats on his wife and taxes and climbs the ladder of success. He's doing just fine. Well, that's not fair. And then the last one, for every virtue that exists, there seems to be the opposite as well. So you help an immigrant family move into an apartment, you get them settled down, and the same day someone opens fire in Walmart trying to kill everyone with a Hispanic accent. What are we to make of that? What is the meaning of life? You, you could, a little later in Ecclesiastes, take his advice. He says, well, look, if it's absurd, 
then you might as well enjoy the little pleasures of life. You know, like some good food, good wine, make love to your spouse. Really? That's it? I mean, I'm not opposed to any of those things, but I've never had a Merlot that could satisfy quite like trying to figure out the meaning of life. Some of you were here two years ago when Miroslav Volf, renowned theologian, preached. While he was here, he told some of us about the most popular class at Yale University. You have to apply to get in, and there's a waiting list. It's called A Life Worth Living. And we're actually in talks with how we could have a class like that here for our church, but also for our community, so stay tuned for that. But the idea of the class is they don't tell you Here's the meaning of life. Instead, they ask you, what do you think is the meaning of life? And then they ask really good questions. Like if someone says, well, look, for me, this is it. I want to be happy and have a lot of money. Okay, that's, that's your view. So what about worldviews that say, you know, serving others can bring happiness and sacrifice can be a part of a good life? You see, they just ask good questions. Some people read the book of Ecclesiastes and they think, ah, he's a pessimist. He's the half-empty kind of guy. You know, the optimist half full, the pessimist half empty. Well, there he is. I don't think so. I think he's a realist. I think he picks up the glass of water and guzzles the whole thing and when he wipes his mouth, he says, you don't get it. It's not about how much is in the glass. It's that people are thirsting to find meaning in life, and they can't quench it. Frederick Buechner would probably agree with that. He's the great spiritual writer and thinker. When he became a Christian as a young adult, he fell in with a group of Christians who claimed to have direct access to God. I mean, it was like they lived across the street from God. This God would tell them what to eat for lunch. You know, like, yeah, go ahead and get the veggie burger. Or who to marry and where to go to school. They had, like, like they had earphones on. God was speaking to them. And he couldn't figure it out. He, he says, you know, it's just not realistic. So he has a suggestion that every morning when you wake up, before you get out of bed, ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? Or even better yet, he says, scan the headlines, and then ask. And he says, five times out of ten, your answer should be no. And the no is as important as, as the five yeses because it's admitting that you don't, have, <laughs> you don't have a handle on this thing called God and the meaning of life. I mean, yeah, there are days when you have total clarity, but like half the time. And he says... That's perfectly fine. Some people, hearing that his title is preacher, teacher, think of this as a sermon, but it's really not. The book of Ecclesiastes is more like the journal or a diary of a preacher. And the thing that haunts him is this. Did any of those sermons matter? <laughs> that haunts preachers all over the world. Does anything I say matter? Does it, does it even make a difference? It got me wondering, though, how old do you think this guy is? I mean, I never think that way with other books in the Bible. 
but with this one I do, and I think it's because I just finished reading a book that I know a lot of you have been reading. I've seen you lugging it around, book clubs and Sunday school classes, David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain. The Second Mountain, just in the title, implies, well, there must be a first mountain, and sure enough, there is. This is the way he lays it out. The first mountain is the one you started climbing when you got out of school as you thought about building your resume and your career and who you might marry and if you would have kids and where you would live, that's the first mountain, and it, it's, it's a doozy. But, but it's separated from the second mountain by a, a kind of ravine or a valley, sometimes brought on by cancer or depression, losing your job. And, and the second mountain, though, when you climb it, all that stuff you cared about, it's not like you don't care, but it's just not the most urgent. The ego has kind of faded away, and you're trying to figure it out. What's this thing all about? Our Jewish brothers and sisters this past week celebrated a holiday. It's a week-long holiday called Sukkot, which can be translated the Festival of Booze, the Festival of Tabernacles, I prefer the translation tense. The idea is that for a week, they look back and remember how the children of Israel, when they came out of Egyptian bondage, but before they entered the promised land, they wandered in the wilderness living in tents for 40 years. And so for a week, they, they remember that. And the tradition is that this passage, not just this passage, this book, be read from beginning to end, which, by the way, only takes about 20 or 30 minutes. There's nothing in this book about the wilderness wanderings, but the rabbis decided it was a really good fit, and it makes sense. Living in a tent between slavery and promised land, that's a pretty good place to ask, so what, what's this all about? What's the meaning of it? Several years ago, I was the speaker for William Jewell's graduation not the commencement speaker, but the preacher-teacher for their baccalaureate. And I struggled. I really struggled. I wanted to find something that might catch their ear. I didn't have the vocabulary then, but I realize now that what I was really trying to figure out is, how am I going to say something of second mountain value to people who haven't yet climbed the first mountain? It didn't seem even possible. I think in our congregation, we have people who have yet to climb the first mountain. And we have people who climbed the second mountain years ago and maybe are even looking over the Jordan. So wherever you find yourself on that journey, you'll have to sort of filter what I'm about to say, kind of process it through where you are. Because I have, I have two suggestions. The first one is, if you want to take stock of your life, you have to slow down in order to do it. When I used to teach at the seminary and would do workshops with pastors trying to hone their preaching skills, we'd go off on retreats a lot of times. And one of the first things I would say, I would say, did anybody when you were a kid, did you have a gerbil or a hamster? And sure enough, somebody will say, oh yeah, yeah. See, you remember that wheel that they get in and they run, and then there's those little plastic tunnels and they go around? Yeah, yeah, yeah said, well, this retreat is an opportunity to get out of the wheel 
and look over the city, the tubes. Because remember that hamster, he's just running and running and going nowhere. Look, look at the life you are living. This, is this how you want to live? Because this is how you are living. This is the rhythm of your life. Some of us are so worried about getting in our steps that we don't get in moments of reflection and pondering. You have to slow down. And the second one is, it demands self-reflection, which of course makes sense. I mean, that's what we're doing, but I don't mean looking in a mirror. It's the kind of self-reflection where you ask yourself, how invested am I in others? Not just myself. How invested am I in something besides myself? Thomas Merton, famous monk, he said, you know, it is totally possible to climb the ladder of success and get to the top. But you might find you had it leaning against the wrong wall. I, I really feel like this topic would be better suited, not in a sanctuary, but around a table with some food and wine, you know, like those neighborhood communion groups or a life worth living class. You know, seated around the table with some folks, eating and drinking and good conversation, and someone says, okay, here's what we're wrestling with tonight. Here's the question. What is the meaning of life? And everyone kind of chuckles like, oh my gosh. And then someone else says, no, 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 I got it. How about this? What is the meaning of your life?